0: Welcome back to the Liberty Librarian. This is your host, Heather Biederman. Uh, it's nice to have you back here this week on this beautiful Monday evening, early early evening, late afternoon, depending on where you live. Uh, this week has been kind of, once again, a little bit crazy, but good. I'm getting costume fever because in a couple weeks, um, Labor Day weekend is coming up and one of our favorite events ever, uh, Dragon Con, is coming up. So, of course, the, the Flight of the Bumblebees is uh, myself and my friends who are attending are making costumes like crazy people. Um, my The one that's causing me the most headaches right now is the Sansa Stark from Game of Thrones costume that I'm going to be doing. I'm really excited about it. So, hopefully, knock on wood... All this painting that I've been doing will be coming to an end soon, and I'll post some pictures on the Liberty Librarian page so you can see what a real queen looks like, right? So other than that, it's been, uh, everything is kind of hurtling towards back to school time, and if you have kids, I I know you've seen the stuff in the stores. If you're a student, you're seeing it, and there are Uh, All your supplies are are at the stores, like, you know, your Targets or Walmarts, you know, so you can't hide from it, right? It's really terrifying for students, I'm sure. And, and, you know, as a faculty person, I I both get really excited about it, but I get nervous, too, because then you think about all the things that you still got to get done before to prep, to get ready, and there's a lot to do. But you know, there's also part of me that's loving summer and enjoying the relaxation and spending more time with my cats and doing stuff around the house. So I kind of miss that too. So if you're going back to school, uh, shoot me a note, let me know. um, Let me know what you're doing. You know? Oh, so I think that one of the things that I'm really excited about is getting back into that. And I've just started uh, a new uh, group. I think I told you guys about it before. It's the Intellectual Freedom uh, Committee. It's uh, with the Office of Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. I'm on the Publications Committee. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to be helping out with that. And seeing if there's anything exciting that we can do with that. So Before I get uh, too much into it, I have a lot of news to cover today and some interesting stuff. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about, there's a new movie in the theaters called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And if you were a kid in the 90s, uh, you probably remember the books. They were banned at, at a lot of schools and a lot of public libraries banned them. And um, now they've made a movie, finally, a movie about them. And people have mixed feelings about it. So I just want to talk a little bit about that later today, too. So before I get going, I'm going to play a few ads to pay some bills. And I see there's a caller on the line. So I'm going to mute this while I play some ads and then check in with you. Okay? So hold on. Let's see.
1: First. I like the way you grow with no pesticides, I got to box it up, box it up. Yeah. I like the way you grow with so locally, I got to box it up, I like the way you grow it, with no GMO, I like the way you twerk it, no. no jiggity, no doubt. We've
0: got squash and peas,
1: calling it a pack for all your
0: bees. Millions you want to squeeze Yes, please Yes, please And welcome back to Liberty Librarian. Um, I'm going to see who's on hold and see if they want to talk. And if it's uh, not going to work out, um, then we will go right into the news. Hi, this is Heather. Anybody there? Nope. Okay. So dumping them. They might have just walked away, but... It looks like uh, someone tried to call in, and I don't have that happen very often. So, I, you know, if you ever want to talk, you can call in, too. So today in the news, and, and I will just like I always say, um, a lot of the news that I get is from the web, but um, I get a lot of it from the Intellectual Freedom blog. Um, the Intellectual Freedom News from the Office of Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association has great news. And if you ever want to know more or you can't get enough and uh, the highlights I share with you during the week, um, there's tons more, more than I could ever cover, even like if I just did the news pretty much all morning or all afternoon, you know, so go and check out that page. It has um, the actual links to the articles that I um, usually talk about, but also more more, more, more. And every Friday they put a new one up. So this is what I cover on our little talks this week. So first, in the news, I should have some sort of music, don't you think? Like It's like the news. So that's something to think about for next time. We'll we'll play. Um, In the news today in Wired Magazine, uh, they talk on August 7th that Elizabeth Warren unveils a plan to expand broadband access. So the senator and presidential candidate wants to offer $85 billion in grants to nonprofits and municipalities to bring the Internet to underserved areas. And you remember last week we talked a little bit about the census that's coming up. And the census, uh, they're relying a lot more on doing... um, Sending it out electronically and uh, having less people actually go door to door to take the census. Right. So this is one of the things that might actually be able to address some of that problem is by um, having underserved areas get more Internet, but $85 billion. Where's that money coming from. Right. So And it says that despite decades of work by government agencies and nonprofits, the digital divide remains wide. So about 26% of Americans in rural areas have no access to home broadband Internet, according to a report released by the FCC last May. But broadband is probably even scarcer in rural, rural areas, as the report suggests. The FCC is traditionally considered an entire census block, which can include hundreds or thousands of people to be served by a broadband provider if the provider offers service to a single home on the block. So it could cost thousands of dollars for a customer to connect, um, but everyone else may not have that. So the agency only changed its reporting requirements this current month. So when uh, the broadband is available, many people can't afford it. So the Pew Research Center report said 19% of people who don't use the Internet cited the cost of Internet service or the expense of owning a computer as the reason they weren't online. So Elizabeth Warren, Warren the presidential candidate and senator from Massachusetts, Democrat, uh, unveiled a plan to spend $85 billion to bring Internet service to unserved and underserved areas, along with proposals to restore net neutrality. And crack down on what she calls sneaky maneuvers, quotes unquote, by broadband providers to increase prices and decrease competition. She wants to make sure that um, everyone in America has a fiber broadband connection at a price that families can afford. So they're making the internet uh, having broadband a almost a right for everyone in the country, Um, and. It's also detailed that other proposals are um, being brought to the table to invest in rural America. So, she's Warren is among the first uh, presidential candidates to inject telecom policy into the campaign. She has issued unusually detailed proposals on other topics, including a plan to break up big tech companies under antitrust laws. So. You know, you kind of wonder, what's going to happen? Is she going to have actually, um, are they going to go out after her? Will she even make it as a presidential candidate if she's attacking these huge companies? We will see. So she calls her plan a public option for Internet. But she doesn't propose that the federal government deliver Internet access itself. She instead wants to provide grants to broadband providers to connect underserved areas. So I feel like there's kind of sneakiness to this too. I mean, you're you're giving money to the provider. So what does she get back out of it? It makes the little bells in my head go off. I mean, it's a great idea to have everyone have uh, internet and to be able to Connect, but I mean, what are they going to do about people don't have computers, right? So, Warren isn't satisfied with the results of the programs such as um, Connect America Fund and the Universal Service Fund that also provide grants to internet providers to offer service in underserved areas. So it's already being done, but she wants more. She wants more money, and she also wants money to go to nonprofit corporations. And she says, only do the minimum required to receive the funds. So, Warren said that um, she would include such companies from her grants, which like nonprofits, and um, it would be limited to electricity and telephone cooperatives, nonprofit organizations, tribes, cities, and counties. So, a lot of small towns uh, have already built their own publicly owned networks. So would these funds go to them? It seems like that would be what she's aiming for. So if communities are already taking on themselves, it's sort of a back-end paying them for the work that they are doing. So that that seems like it's helpful. Once again, where does this money come from? She proposes creating an Office of Broadband Access, OBA, with a Department of Economic Development to run the program. And she said they would set aside $5 billion of the $85 billion specifically for tribal nations and expand the FCC's Office of Native Affairs and Policy to provide additional training and funding. So she wants to make broadband market more competitive. And the the libertarian part of me worries that all this huge billions of dollars going into And controlling broadband um, Where Is the, the potential There is a potential for um, Abuse Mismanagement So I, I worry about How they're going to prevent that So hopefully in the partisan Politics of it um, There is some Checks and balances for that as well Which I don't see As for the net neutrality Um, Warren says that she will appoint FCC commissioners who will restore the Obama-era regulations banning broadband providers from blocking or otherwise discriminating against lawful content on their networks. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Okay. I think that these... Obama era regulations banning broadband providers from blocking or otherwise discriminating against lawful content on their networks. It's, it's, I'm wondering how they're going to do that. But the current Republican controlled FCC has floated similar ideas. And I just, I don't know if she's trying to make this a big thing for um, her presidential run or if it's actually going to be helpful or it's going to get dropped. But at this point, I've heard uh, talk about uh, Internet for All, and I've heard about Education for All, especially uh, Bernie Sanders has been out talking. Um, I think I saw him on Joe Rogan. And um, it, it's all of these projects sound really great. I mean, I'd love it if everybody had the chance to go to school if they wanted to, for everyone to have Internet. But these are billion-dollar Billions and billions of dollars, um, and where is this money going to come from? I mean, our our whole country is uh, over our eyeballs in debt, and I just, I'm not sure how they're going to turn it around if they have these huge proposals that sound really good on paper, but are they going to be good in practice? So, something to think about, Elizabeth Warren. Okay, onward. This is a real short piece. Do you know the last week or so um, they had the El Paso? Two weeks ago, El Paso had a shooter, right? We talked last week about um, not giving power to um, terrorists, not giving power to um, shooters and people who do terrible things like that, taking the power away. Um, This is sort of related in that – when the shooter um, was getting ready in the parking lot, he posted an anti-immigrant manifesto on what's called 8chan, which is an internet forum service. So it's in being discussed by politicians, and um, it was taken down. Um, well, here, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. So it's about the limits of free speech on the internet. So... There's urgency to the question according to people um, who run everything. Uh, he, the suspect posted uh, this manifesto on against Hispanic immigrants on 8chan. After the shooting, 8chan lost the support of a crucial network services company. So they took away their support for it because they, they were looking bad for providing service to 8chan. But because of that, it has taken away free speech on the internet. And NPR's Martin Kaste reports on a debate over the policing the internet speech. So this was on August sixth, And I found this article on NPR by uh, Martin Kaste. So the host, um, Ari Shapiro, said, who gets to decide the limits of free speech on the internet? After the shooting, they lost their support. And according to Martin Case, curbing online hatred is a thorny problem in the country with America's strong free speech tradition. Here's Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren once again um, being put on the spot on CNN just one day after the tragedy. And they gave a sound bite. Um, Should these sites be shut down, Senator? Um, And Elizabeth Warren said, look, this is. One where I'm very nervous about government intervention in this area and yet we have to be thinking about public safety here. And they left it um, policing free speech to companies. This is from Case again. And um, at first that suited the tech world with its libertarian leanings. So I didn't. this is news to me that the tech world is libertarian. So I'm kind of glad to hear that. So Twitter, for instance, used to call itself free speech wing of the free speech party, but there's been a reckoning because people don't, they love free speech until it's something they don't want to hear. So, I think everyone's getting smart to the fact that, you know, the internet is now all rainbows and unicorns. Well, duh. So... They say there's pressure on internet companies to take responsibility for what others publish, even companies that just provide network services. So sites like 8chan depend on companies that can handle big surges in demand and can also fend off attacks from hostile attackers. So there's only a handful of those that can handle something like that for a huge site like 8chan. Um, They say that something like Cloudflare or a Akamai, um, Akami, um, have other hosting platform sites can mitigate attacks. So they had relied on um, the company called Cloudflare, but they got dropped after, as a client, after the shooting. HN had trouble finding a replacement because, I mean, it's so huge. Um, but Cloudflare didn't sound happy about the situation. They're incredibly. Their CEO Matthew Prince quoted. Um, we continue to be feel incredibly uncomfortable about playing the role of content arbiter. Do not plan to exercise it often, unquote. The household names of the Internet are more used to this role of speech police. Facebook and YouTube are just too visible to the public to sidestep the responsibility. So there's content moderation. Um etsy decides every day whether or not it's going to let people sell nazi paraphernalia according to this kate Klonick, um airbnb has people post art in their homes and they can put it on the internet it's all it's it's free speech right um there's not a right answer though um some conservatives say the uh, enforced norms are trending liberal so they, they say that there should be impartia, impartiality of the social media platforms, but leftists have been tripped up by changing norms too. In case of the Canadian feminist writer Megan Murphy, last year she was booted from Twitter, but apparently because she refuses to refer to transgender women as women. So, if you have an unpopular viewpoint, it's very likely that you will lose your service, you will get booted, you will get banned. and is this the way that we should be handling these things? I, I tend to disagree with that. Um, it's very slippery slope where we start going down that path of um, b- blocking content really. And it's an easy thing to do just to say like, oh, we don't have a service provider because it's too, um, they disagree with it. Well, I almost wonder if they need to make a their own kind of contracts with the service provider someplace like 8chan or Twitter um, that talks about the fact that they need to make it more difficult to cut content oh, sorry cat issue always wants to be in the way so anyway. They talk about the discomfort in the role of speech police. Ideas like this may catch on. So companies think that they can offload some of the responsibility. Um, Facebook, it says, is planning a new panel of independent outsiders to review its content moderation, something that tech media have already dubbed Facebook Supreme Court. So we are on the edge of a dark time where censorship is going to be the norm. And even stuff like this where I'm talking about it, who knows how much longer we'll be able to have uh, content where we can just talk freely like this. It may go away. So let's all cherish the free speech we have right now because it could be gone. Okay. Switching gears. Um, this week, it's more sad news. And, um beloved... Uh, Beloved, the author, Toni Morrison, has died at 88 this week, last week. It's really sad news. Um, As a librarian, we have a ton of her books in our library, and we're putting up a a display in her honor. Um, But she died last Monday night, according to her publisher. She was 88 years old and died peacefully after a short illness. She was originally born Chloe... Ardella Wofford. So Toni Morrison was best known for her critically acclaimed and best-selling novel, Beloved, which won the 1988 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and she had other memorable and influential novels like Jazz in 1992, Paradise in 1997, and the three books make up kind of a loose trilogy. Just after the last of them was published, Morrison was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature becoming the first black woman of any nationality to do so. And the Nobel Prize committee uh, celebrated her as an author who in novels characterized by visionary force and poetic import gives life to an essential aspect of American reality. So she, at that point, when she won the Nobel Prize, she had already written six novels and she would go on to write five more. Her latest book was called God Help the Child in 2015. She wrote through the toughest of times, including the death of her own son in 2010. And she stopped, uh, she said, she I stopped writing until I began to think he would be really put out if he thought that he had caused me to stop, Morrison told Interview Magazine around the release of her ninth novel, Home in 2012. And then before she was a world renowned author, Morrison broke barriers as an editor for Random House where she worked for 19 years, publishing a new generation of black writers, including Toni Cade Bambara, Gail Jones, and Angela Davis. She was also the chair of humanities at Princeton, where she taught from 1989 to 2006. She said, we die, Morrison closed her Nobel Prize address. That may be the meaning to life, but we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. So goodbye to you, Toni Morrison. Your books are loved and you will be remembered. You know, when I think about great authors like Toni Morrison, and sometimes pushing boundaries, getting into areas where we talk about things like rape and uh Feminism and ideas and concepts that people are uncomfortable with. Um, We need to have uncomfortable topics written about. We need to have um, all sorts of viewpoints. We need to have books on LGBTQ. We need to have opposing viewpoints in libraries. And I think that, especially when you get such great writers, it's it's our moral imperative to really show representation. So when I read this in um, Iowa Public Radio, uh, All Things Considered, um, they said Northwest Iowa man um, was ordered to pay a fine for burning LGBTQ library books. So this was written by Katie Peaks, August 6th. So this... Uh, man named Paul Doerr was fined $65 and a 35% surcharge for burning four LGBTQ-themed children's books from Orange County Library last year. So um, he burned them, and he was found guilty of fifth-degree criminal mischief. Now, this Paul Dore, who's 63, I can see if I say this right, Oche Dayan, um, Iowa, runs a Christian group called Rescue the Perishing. It was fine. $65 is not much, considering you, you're, you're a book burner. I'd almost think you'd be banned for life from being in a library, but um, the $65 fine is a minimum for his charge, a simple misdemeanor. So the Sioux County attorney, Thomas Kunstall, um, Represented the state of Iowa requested Dorby find the maximum pen, penalty of $625 for destroying the library's property. So in October 2018 last year this door recorded himself on a video posted to social media publicly burning for children's library books that have lesbian gay and bisexual themes mostly in protest for a pride festival happening in Orange City. So according to the criminal complaint uh, filed by duane holstein an investigator from the orange city police department um, this person Dorr checked out these four books from the public library on october 6th and he burned them damaging them beyond use on october 19th um, door on tuesday defended himself in court and chose not to testify during his non-jury trial before his. Sentence, Dorr recited the last two stanzas of the Netherlands national anthem in English, the alma mater of Orange City's Northwestern College. That's a really weird thing to do. Uh, Dorr declined to comment to the media immediately after the trial. In a written statement, he said he burned the books to exercise his freedom of speech and faith. This is what he said My motive was to honor the triune God in whom my faith resides, and to protect the children of Orange City from being seduced into a life of sin and misery," Doris said in his statement. Um, The statewide LGBTQ organization One Iowa's Interim Executive Director Courtney Reyes, Reyes condemned Doris' actions in a statement. This is her statement. Libraries are safe havens where every person has free access to all ideas and expressions without restriction. Door intended to deprive the children of Orange City that access, to isolate LGBTQ youth from the reflections of themselves and stories, to take from all youth the opportunity to empathize with people different than themselves. Such an act is terrible, and we are glad justice was served today. So, the ACLU of Iowa, which advocates to protect free speech, called Door's actions disturbing. And it says burning books from a public library is an attempt to shut down the open sharing of discussion and ideas. I'll pause right there. I totally agree with that. Um, you have a right to disagree. You have a right to protest. You have a right to send letters to a library asking them to remove it. And they will listen to your letters. They take them very seriously. They may not choose to do it, but you have those your free speech rights now when you're destroying property you're committing crimes to prevent people from reading to prevent people from discussing something Um, you are stopping free speech really that's what you're doing so I agree with that sentiment so burning public books This is what they said, burning public books is a destruction of ideas, and that's reprehensible. Bettis Austin said, the destruction of books from a public library is a clear attempt to shut down the open sharing and discussing of ideas. No one person or even group should decide they are the gatekeepers of ideas for the rest of the public. So in this trial, they talk about the witnesses, um, the chief investigator, and a public library employee named uh, Cheryl Kugler from Orange City Public Library. She testified that Dorr came to the library, applied for a library card in October. So he specifically came there because I think he just wanted to check out the books to burn. He He wasn't already a patron of the library, which makes me think that he's not much of a reader. So, he wanted the library card, he told her, because his mother-in-law would be entering a care facility in the area, and he wanted her to become more familiar with her library, since he would be there more often. Kugler said she informed him of the library's checkout policies before giving him a library card. In the weeks after the Doors video on Firewall, the library received an outpouring of support in the form of donated books and money. Kugler said the library received between 800 to 1,000 book do- donations, over $3,700. So the loads of books included copies of the four books, Door Burned, and other titles. So if his intent was to stop the children in that community from reading those kind of books, it backfired severely. So you can see a better option for him would have been to write letters, to ask them to ban a book, to ask them to do things legally. Doing things illegally often leads to this kind of thing. So I'm not sympathizing with him. I'm just saying if you are entitled to your own ideas, you can disagree. You can. That's why we live in America. It's a free country. But you start um, using criminal activities to um, push your point, um, you're going you're gonna to have it backfire. It's just the way it is. Use, use your brain. Try to do better things to help people. But I was glad to see that even though he did these terrible things, getting about 1,000 book donations and um, all the books back, that worked out pretty good for the library. So the library entered fewer than 50 into its collection. Um, The rest were sent to be resold or returned to vendors. So people love libraries, and I'm really glad to know that. It's sad that somebody would be basically a book burner. I really don't want to live in a world where there's book burning and there's censorship and your privacy is taken away at every moment. It really, it breaks my heart. So hopefully we don't see too many of those kind of small minded, weird things happening, but I just wanted to share that it happened in Iowa and not too far from here where I live. So it can happen anywhere. Okay. International news of the weird, speaking of book burning, Turkey, the country, burns 300,000 books from schools and public libraries. This was last updated on August 8th on the um, ZMEscience.com website. So it said that 300,000 books from Turkish schools and libraries have been destroyed since 2016 the Turkish Ministry of Education has announced this. Turkish officials claim the books are linked to Fethullah Gulen, Gulen, the Muslim cleric, with the current regime considers to be responsible for the 2016 Turkish coup d'etat attempt. However, critics say that burning books goes way beyond that. So, if you like we talked about in the last article I shared with you. Destroying books is rarely a sign of a healthy democracy. Yet, with steaming pride, Turkey's education minister uh, Ziya Sokuk uh, announced last week that 301,878 books had been destroyed. It's part of a government crackdown on anything linked to this. Um, Golan is regarded as an enemy um, by er- Erdogan's party charged with multiple crimes against the state. Although the evidence is not compelling. So because of this, burning these books happened in in like the last three, four years. So there's a popular newspaper called Hriet, which raised some important questions about this decision to burn the books, such as if the books are indeed subversive. And then why did they end up in the schools in the first place? Um, This is also confirmed with images of books being seized and burned, published by the online news outlet Kronos 27, which seems to be bouncing online and offline for unknown reasons. So it's targeted. So a situation was also analyzed by a website called Turkey Purge, which describes itself as a small group of young journalists who are trying to be the voice for the Turkish people who suffer under an oppressive regime. They report that a 2016 mathematics book was banned banned because a question read from point F to point G, these being the initials of Fethullah Gulen. So they said that because there was F and G in there, they had to burn the book, which is crazy and ridiculous that a math book is burnt. So a similar situation was described in December 2016 by the Turkish newspaper Birgun, which reported that 1.8 million textbooks had been destroyed and reprinted for containing the word Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, which is where Gulen lives in a guarded compound. That I did not know. It's hard to justify these actions under reasonable attempts to reduce a harmful influence. So they're making the decisions to burn the books, not because they're having content that uh, can damage young minds, because they have words that may lead them to think about, you know, where this um, past leader had gone to. That's freaking ridiculous. So free speech organizations have spoken out against these efforts. PEN, International, Penn International, Worldwide Association of Writers, founded in London in 1921 to promote literature and intellectual cooperation, says that the publishing landscape in Turkey has been decimated with over a quarter of all publishing houses being shut down for spreading terrorist propaganda. This reminds me so much of the handmaid's tale. It's really creeping me out in in that show. um, The main character worked for a newspaper and all the newspapers, they pretty much took everyone into like other rooms and killed them if they didn't already like kept make them leave done everything down so it got worse and worse so they they take your news out they take out all your sources of information and then you only have them and that's where it's all going so anyway they say this after a state of emergency was declared decreed after the t- attempted coup Over 200 media outlets and publishers were shut down, and almost 6,000 academics have been dismissed from 118 public universities. They go after the academics. Turkey is undergoing a crisis, and there are reasons to believe the current government is using the attempted coup as an excuse to crack down on intellectual freedom and freedom of speech. Here's a quote. The government has dramatically increased its influence on the media and publishing landscape, thereby silencing critical voices, said Penn. We call on the Turkish authorities to permit the reopening of an independent operation of publishing houses and urgently end their far-reaching crackdown on freedom of expression, which continues unabated. So, if you had any doubts that Turkey was going through a Terrible, terrible time Um, It's true It's very true I would read up more on it It seems to me That they're using this um, The attempted coup Is just a device To silence people To get rid of anyone who would oppose them Under the guise That they're trying to get Terrorist ideas Does that sound familiar? Yes, it should Because they do that in our country too by uh, taking away ideas And freedom of speech um, There is no discussion There is no free speech and discourse We need to have um, Books, we need to have news We need to have uh, Video and websites And you know television News, we need to have these resources And they need to be independent They need to be separate From any government that's in charge Because they need to be Questioned and in most governments, um, our government, um, we have a lot of checks and balances, so things work out. But um, unchecked, things can go terribly wrong. So just use Turkey as an example of how things can go terribly wrong and that it can get worse and worse for any of us. Okay, let's see. I think that's the last of the news I wanted to cover. Um Yeah, they talked a little bit about FBI and student surveillance. Um, I'm not going to have time to go into all of that, but uh, I love to share the news with you. And I'm kind of sad there wasn't any um, exciting uh, technology news. It's usually my favorite ones, but um, it's a slow week for that. I'm kind of glad. Slow week means they're not taking your rights away. That's kind of awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a couple ads, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, scary stories to tell in the dark and uh, about banned books and how over time they can become more and more accepted and what's changed in our society that made it happen. So I will be right back. See you in a little bit.
1: Want to live a happy and healthy barefoot lifestyle? Join Barefoot is Legal Saturdays 1:30 p.m. Eastern, 10:30 a.m. Pacific time to learn your rights to be barefoot. There are no laws against bare feet in public and we are here to dispel the myths and empower you to stand up for your rights. Join full-time barefooters and victim legal advocates Nick Pierce and Richard Johnson on Freedomizer Radio for the Barefoot is Legal show Saturdays, 1:30 p.m. Eastern, 10:30 a.m. Pacific. And check out our website at barefootislegal.org. Hello, Freedomizers. Joanne Moretti here. Join me and my co-host, Scott Ferrarello and crew, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the latest news, politics, current events, investigative reports, right here at freedomizerradio.com. See you on Wednesday at 6 Eastern.
0: and welcome back to liberty librarian uh today i'm going to talk a little bit about banned books and i i know it's aging myself but uh back in the early 90s there was a series so think about that like we're getting to be about is it 30 years of uh or was it 40? I, I'm trying to remember. But uh, so Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was banned um, book. And it, now it's in a major motion p- picture that's um, available now in the movie theaters. I looked on the website and I see that it's in my own town. So I'm sure it's almost everywhere. It's in small town Minnesota. Um, you can, if you've read these, you'll remember them. Um, they have a cover of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It had a cover image of a head resembling a clown skull, which is freaky. <laughs> I hate clowns and skulls are creepy. But it had exaggerated features and a red colored nose. And it was rising from the ground. And it was a preview of the terrors to be found in the first book. So this series is written by author Alvin Schwartz. And it initially featured drawings from uh, Stephen Gamel. And those are the things I remember the most. They had these creepy pictures. And what's kind of cool, and I haven't seen the new movie yet. So that's one of the things I've been thinking about this week is that um, from the pictures, there is a story called The Dream. Oh, my goodness. I went to this website called scaryforkids.com, and it has The Dream. And I didn't realize... That when I was looking at the picture of the character in the dream, it's a girl who is a nightmare. She meets a creepy woman with black hairs and black eyes. So in the, if you see the trailer for this, it's kind of a amorphous blob woman with like no neck and her face is kind of looks melty, like she doesn't have a skeleton hardly under her, but she's just kind of terrifying looking in a weird way and yet kind of cute to me. I don't know what, what it is, but And so when I was looking at this website just now to tell you about it, um, this is a GIF. It's like, you know, they just said it might be pronounced GIF, but I'm going to go with GIF because that's the way I've been brainwashed. And so I'm looking at this picture going, yeah, she's just terrifying. And then all of a sudden she blinks. And I go, oh, my God. So that's terrifying. So I just want to. I'll do a little bit of a reading from that in just a minute. But um, what's cool with the Stephen Gamel art was that the the movie, um, which also has Guillermo del Toro involved, um, who I love, really. Like, you want to get some scary stuff. He's just amazing, beautiful, and terrifying all at the same time. And he has my birthday, too. That's really weird. Um, So, they used the art as inspiration in the movie. So some of the characters that you see from the drawings look exactly like they do in the books. So it lives up to expectations there. And I thought that was really cool. So 1981, these books started. So throughout the years, um, it grew. It was from passed down from generation to generation. So let me see. My math brain isn't working right. So it's 2019, Right. 2019 minus 1981 38 years almost 40 years right okay so you know some of these people weren't even born when these books first came out I was but um, I was actually like I didn't remember seeing them too much when I was younger it was when I was actually in high school um, when they like the word got out more that there were banned books that I actually saw them. And I went, Oh, this isn't that scary. Cause I've always, um, I'm like, I love horror. I, when I was a kid, even in, I think I was in fourth grade, I actually read Firestarter. I was a very advanced reader and I loved Stephen King. Even even to this day, he's just so great. Some of the ideas for stories are super weird and fun and You know, you get around academics, and they're like, I didn't read that. I didn't read Stephen King. I'm like, you know what? Stephen King's awesome. He's awesome sauce, and I will always love being freaked out. So, yay, Stephen King. So, anyway, that was – it would have been my jam, but, like, I never saw these books until, like, I was a little bit older. And then it seemed a little bit past my reading level. I mean, I was past it in reading levels anyway. So, um But now I kind of appreciate it because I love banned books. I think you need to defend this. Like if kids want to read it, they love, kids love gross stuff and scary stuff. And if you think you're going to protect people from it forever, especially like it's written at a children's level. um, It seems like it's actually quite appropriate for the, the age that it's, it's going at for, it was, um, In children's sections of libraries and at book fairs, children ate it up. They loved it, but parents were terrified of it. So there was an outcry to condemn them. And the appearance of the series on many banned books lists for the last three decades has only improved the sales. You know, like if I want to get somebody to read something in in my library, even at college level, you just say, that's a banned book. And they're like, ooh, I got to read it now. You know, they may not have any attention, but there's something sexy about a banned book, right? So why why is it so bad? And judge for yourself. And I like that. I like letting people judge for themselves anyway. Um, I, I will say the caveat is if, like, I always, I know people, I have friends who are just, they don't want to watch shows with blood. They don't want to read stuff with blood. So when I know something has blood in it or it's gory, I'm like, it's kind of scary just letting you know. There's some gore in it, and people might be like, yeah, cool, I love it. But, you know, I think about all the times that I was reading Stephen King books, and I was thinking about the first time I read It. And there was a scene where, God, what was it? It was um, Pennywise was um, talking to the little girl in it, I can't remember the character's name, through the drain. And it just freaked me out. I threw the book across the room because I was so scared. And to this day, like, I am very cautious around little drains because I always think that, like, no, there's no Pennywise in the drain. Yeah, I read that story, and it got into my brain. So clowns are scary, y'all. So so strengthening the, their legacy, so the outcry, um, there's a new documentary, and so th- they talk about the three de- decades of um, banning this, these books Children love things that are inappropriate. So this Cody Murick is the director of a documentary now. So this is the thing, your assignment to, like, if you want to know more, it's a documentary called Scary Stories. So this week I'm going to be watching that and and learning more, too, because I I know what I've read and I know about the stories. But I haven't seen the movie, and I want to see the documentary before I go see the movie, so I get even more excited so there's um, this Cody Merrick um, got, had an interview with Inverse and um, talked to that said, Schwartz really loved the fact that his books were being banned. The attention okay. to censorship within schools and libraries was just beginning to take shape around the time of his passing in the early 90s. So the American Library Association really started tracking and making lists of them in the mid 1980s, which was when his books really began to take off. But Alvin loved it and thought it was great publicity. And seriously, nothing like banning a book that makes everybody want to read it. So, lots of children love the books, but parents did not. It was kind of gruesome. They're very scary. And um, they, a lot of parents might not have liked it because their kids read the books and got freaked out. I always, when I was a kid, I I took responsibility. Maybe it's because I was born like an old person or something, but... Um, if I watched a scary movie, watched a scary book, I knew that it was my own dang fault. And if I kept doing it, then I was, and I couldn't sleep, I was being stupid. So there was some nights that I would sleep with a light on or a light in the closet, just so that way I knew um, what was going on. I would rarely go and tell my parents, I'm scary. Um, that doesn't mean other kids don't do that, but. I always felt like, you know what? I was a stupid one to watch that. I remember watching a Freddy Krueger movie. And, um, I think it was even in high school when I watched it. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to go to sleep now. What's going to happen? Are gonna, is Freddy going to get me? And, and I always, like, I lay down. And if it's something that's bothering me or scaring me, I was like, you know that's not going to happen, right? It's like, it's a story. And... You know, 99% of the time, you can like talk yourself out of it. It's the scary stuff in the real world that makes you lose a lot of sleep. So, not worth it for fiction. Although, doesn't that really light up your brain? Like reading really good either scary stories, just good stories in general. So, it always helped me go to sleep actually, even scary ones. So, so some of the other more frequent titles that appear on the list today for banned books are some of my favorites like Harry Potter like ah who hasn't read Harry Potter um, his dark materials which they're coming out with the new movies and um, those are really pretty good I always wondered why those were in there I think it was mostly because they called the the little familiars demons demons and I think that freaked people out and then they had the whole thing with um, children being kidnapped and it's scary. It is scary, um, but they're very good stories, and I can I see why people love them. But I really, I always was puzzled by that one. And this one we have in our library, *The Hate You Give*, and I know why *The Caged Bird Sings*. So, scary stories um, was deemed inappropriate for the depiction of violence and negativity. Negativity. That's a really weird thing to ban a book for but you know i'd be banned probably if you had some negativity issues so in 1993 there's an interview with chicago tribune and a former elementary school teacher named sandy vandenberg offered her comments about the material she said if these books were movies they'd be r-rated because of the graphic violence there's no moral moral to them the bad guys always win Scary stories still frequently challenged to this day, and there's always concern over the content. Well, I'm going to say this, um, and I think they say this in this article too, is that um, you kind of compare these to like Aesop, Aesop's fables, you know, um, where they basically say, um, you know, before they turned them into Disney, they um, Aesop's fables, they're German. And they had freaky things happen, like kids got eaten because they didn't listen to their parents. Or um, somebody um, was tortured, the peas under the bed, you know. And, you know, they they turn them into sweet little stories now that are cutesy. And um, the reason they were so dark was because they wanted to protect the children from the badness in the world. And a little bit of fear was more memorable than giving them just too much sugar. So it, people today seem to think that children are, I, I, I don't want to say, like they can't handle it. They don't think they can handle it. But yet I've talked to enough little kids in libraries that they want, they want darker stuff. But their darker stuff is a lot less brutal than anything I could ever handle. You know, I, I mean, there's children level of dark and there's adult level of dark. And I, and I, and I see that in these books that um, people like to be scared. They like the, the Hookman stories and, the, you know, the, the stories that we pass on. And it's just, it, it's horror and you, you get an audience of horror people love spooky stories and it's it's kind of amazing that this is something that was so feared by parents so one of the things that they talk about again is the artwork by gamel and it was very unsettling the black and white images and People, like, to this day, you you may have read the stories and the the content kind of faded from your mind, but you see the art and you go, oh, yeah, I read that book. That was scary. There's a a book, a story called um, Sam's New Pet, and it features a grotesque sewer rat. And the red spot has a portrait of a young woman with spiders crawling out of her cheek. And people are freaked out by spiders, so that one makes it really gross. And Harold, that story Harold, is a shot of a scarecrow, which I saw in the trailer. And he looks like he's hanging with a noose around his neck and his stitched-up stomach adds the unnerving feeling you get while looking at him. So there's a reissue for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark for its 30th anniversary in 2011. HarperCollins replaced the drawings with a new artist called Brett Helquist who um, was an artist for a series of unfortunate events, which is beautiful. And this artist, Brett Hellquist, was hired to make the parents' um, complaints about the books um, kind of go away, to calm them down, to make it a little bit less scary looking. So the images that kept children up at night were replaced with tamer illustrations. People hated it. And I'm not saying Brett Hellquist is a bad artist. He's great. But what people loved about the stories was that freaking morbid art that was with it. And it was scary. It it went perfectly with the stories. So people thought it was censorship. Uh, The designs were perfect. So separating them, the the art and the text, um, the illustrations... It was um, stepping on one's childhood, they say in this article. So the Amazon reviews showed that people were super frustrated with these changes. These might be better toned down for your boring children. But if you're hoping to reminisce about the terrors of your childhood, you have to look elsewhere, said one. And then another person said, you'll be missing out on part of what made these books. as wonderful in the first place, said another. So... There's websites that you can look at the images side by side, and it was hard to be enthusiastic about the difference. There's something beautiful and horrific about the Gamel drawings. So in 2017, just to let you know, the books were reissued again in a collection with the original art. So the, they listened. They were worried. And so people who are, think their kids are gonna be terrified, they have the option of the new art. But really, if the kids are reading it anyway, they're probably gonna love the the gruesomeness of the Gamel art. So now, now we fast forward to after 2013, um, that Guillermo del Toro was attached to the project as a writer and a producer. He shared love for the books during press junkets. He said, When I saw the cover of Scary Stories Volume 1, it was astounding. He told Vulture, this summer. He was so impressed and influenced by the drawings that he purchased nine of Gamel's illustrations from the books. So Guillermo del Toro, who, if you ever get a chance to go see his art, he had a traveling show that um, highlighted it, had costumes and everything too. Just amazing. Del Toro wanted to make sure that the feeling of seeing those creatures in the book came across on the big screen. So this is where I totally think they've nailed it. I mean, I saw the trailer and went, oh, my God, there's that lady, the one that scares me with the big black eyes and long hair. She looks just like she does in the book. It's terrifying. So he expresses a concept for bringing this to life. He said, we wanted to emulate with the creatures the black and white feeling of the illustrations in the book. We knew we wanted them drained of color because it makes it scarier. So there's D- Del Toro and a uh, director, Andre Orvidal Orvidal uh, looks evoking that original artwork for the creature designs in the movie. Audiences can appreciate that banned and censored imagery anew. And longtime fans get to cinematically re-experience monsters that haunted their dreams long ago. Maybe even relive some of their old nightmares. Freaking terrifying. So there was a, so they talk about a little bit more about they're hated by the teachers. Teachers have hated this series, too. Um, there was efforts to ban the series from school libraries. The collection of books was, in fact, one of the most challenged and banned franchises in the 90s. They said that they called them repulsive and disgusting because, okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. There's depiction of cannibalism, murder, and dismemberment. This isn't real innocent stuff, right? But I'm just going to say, not all kids should or even could read that kind of stuff. But I remember being, like, in fourth grade and reading way scarier things, and it wouldn't have bothered me. But other kids, they get nightmares. They're easily susceptible and I mean, you kind of got to talk to your kids and know what kind of things they like, what they can handle. And if you see them reading it, you know, instead of just, just get, take that out of here, get out of here, have a discussion about it. Like, why are you reading it? What do you like about it? You know, maybe read some of this stuff. Look at it a little bit. You know, and if it really bothers you, talk to your kids and, and see. See, talk to librarians. See why they added it to a collection. You know, you have a right to disagree. That's the beauty of this country. But to take it away totally, to ban it, is making it so people can't decide for themselves what's right for them, what's right for their own kids. So please at least take under my advisement that I think that it's kind of cool that it exists. And obviously the new series is probably more um, aiming for adults that... Grew up reading the series, so I'm not sure I would take a bunch of little kids to it. But um, God, I gotta look up. Give me one second. I'm gonna see if I can figure out what it was rated. That's one thing I didn't look at because remember that one liber- or teacher said they thought it was gonna be R-rated. What is it rated? <laughs> PG-13, kids. So, not R-rated. And I think that age for that kind of movie, most 13-year-olds can handle it. You're not going to bring little, little ones into a movie like that. But you're talking pre-teen and teen. They've seen worse. They've talked worse. Um, but you got to look at maturity of each person as an individual. And some kids can handle it and some can't. So what I think I'm going to do, I'm just going to look through really quick. Um, the adaptation um, Del Toro bought. Um, there are stars in it Michael Garza, Austin Abrams, Gabriel Rush, Austin Zager, and Natalie Gantzhorn. Um, so the story begins with a group of teenagers discover the haunted home of a tormented woman named Sarah Bellows. Bellows turned her tortured existence into a series of short, scary stories that become a horrifying reality for anyone unlucky enough to discover them. So it's a film of creepy murderous scarecrows and singing decapitated heads holds the same magic and horror as the original book series. Um, The thing that I wanted to mention, though, is despite how creepy it is, they all have morals and lessons to offer children, just like any good Aesop fable would do. So after all, it was created to be family-friendly haunted house experience for kids to see their beloved horror franchise come to life. Whether or not parents will get on board remains to be seen, but one thing is for sure, scary stories to tell in the dark will terrify kids of all ages, and probably grown-ups too. So, I was looking at, there's a website called Scary for Kids, and it's got scary stories and short stories, so it has some of the the ideas from these, and the one i was just looking at was that one with the the dream so this is the one about the the woman with the black hair and the black eyes it's based on a tale recounted by augustus hare in his autobiography this is a version of the story that appeared in scary stories to tell in the dark i'm just going to read a little bit of this so you can get a taste of what it is so that way you can decide for yourself if it's something And so this is from um, scaryforkids.com, and this is The Dream. And it's written by the author, uh, Alvin Schwartz. And it looks, frankly, just like the Stephen (laughs) Gamel terrifying um, art. And it has a picture of the art that I'm talking about. So if you look through this page, there's a lot of this here. So... Anyway, I'm going to read a little bit for you guys. Lexi Morgan had a dream. She was walking up a dark staircase. When she got to the top, she walked into a bedroom. The bedroom carpet was made up of large squares that looked like trapdoors, And each of the windows was fastened shut with big nails that stuck up out of the wood. In her dream, Lexi went to sleep in the bedroom. But during the night, a woman with a pale face black eyes and long black hair slipped silently into the room she leaned over the bed and whispered this is an evil place run away while you still can then the black-haired woman grabbed her arm lexi morgan awoke with a scream and lay awake the rest of the night shivering and shaking with fear in the morning she told her landlady that she had decided not to go to kingston after all i can't tell you why she said But I just can't bring myself to go there. Then why don't you go to Dorset, the landlady said. It's a pretty town. It isn't too far. So Lexi Morgan went to Dorset. Someone told her she could find a room in a house at the top of the hill. It was a pleasant-looking house. And the landlady there, a plump motherly woman, was as nice as could be. Let's look at the room, she said. I think you'll like it. They walked up a dark carved staircase, just like the one in Lexi's dream. "'In these old houses, the staircases are all the same,' Lexi thought. "'When the landlady opened the door to the bedroom, it was the room in her dream, "'with the same carpet that looked like trap doors "'and the same windows fastened with big nails. "'This is just a coincidence,' Lexi told herself. "'How do you like it?' the landlady asked. "'I'm not sure,' Lexi said. "'Well, take your time,' the landlady said. "'I'll bring up some tea while you think about it.' "'Lexi sat on the bed.' Staring at the trapdoors and the big nails. Soon there's a knock on the door. It's the landlady with the tea, she thought. But it wasn't the landlady. It was the woman with pale face and black eyes and long black hair. Lexi Morgan grabbed her things and fled. The end. So you can tell their creepy stories. You know, you know. We a couple weeks ago we talked about creepy pasta. And those kind of stories. And some of them are far more terrifying to me than any of these scary stories are. But I think, together with the pictures, it can really get in your head. And I can see why people would be a little scared for their kids. But I don't, I think it's, if you have kids that are smart and precocious enough that they're interested in it, these aren't as bad as what people make them out to be. Read them for yourself. And if, you know, if, you, if you're worried about it and you know that books have been banned and you're a little worried for your kids, read them first. Most of these take no time to go through. And it's worth it. So that way you know, you know, what kind of things your kids are interested in. And, and I always say, just have conversations with people. So, what do you think about scary story for kids? The, the scary stories to tell in the dark. You know? I was looking at some of the art, and it's just freaky. The one with the spiders does definitely freak me out a bit. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff about art. And I think the art is actually the thing that bothers me the most. But, you know, because they're black and white, they also... There's something kind of, like, far away about them. And I like that. So, I hope that... These inspire you to maybe go to the movie. Um, definitely look at the documentary. I'm going to look that up really quick for you. I think that's on is it Amazon Prime. I'm going to look that up. The scary Stories to Tell in the Dark documentary. I think it's on Netflix then. Let me look. Where to watch. There we go. Red Central has a trailer for this too. I might post that to my Facebook page so that way you can see for yourself about the documentary and how to get to it. Um, let's see. Boy, my internet's going slow. I just want to tell you. I think it's on Netflix. It'll be coming soon. Um, I think it's out now though, because I think that um, it's something that's right there. Da-da-da-da-da. Where's the band books? So, yeah, it's been out for a while. It says it's on Prime Video, Amazon Prime. So I don't know that it's on the others or not. Um, oh, it's rental. More options. Yeah, it looks like it's on Amazon Prime. It might be something you have to rent. But I'll look around. If I can find a free version, I'll post it on the Facebook, too. So and that way you know where to go see it but I'll definitely post a trailer so you can see the trailer for the documentary as well. Are there other, uh, fan books from your past that you're really excited about that change who you are and you're glad that you read, um, share one, share on the Facebook. Well, we can always talk about it. I think that some of these scary stories really, you know, formed who I am now in my own natural sense of being a little bit, um, cautious and wanting to protect my freedom and protect other people's freedom comes from that because the scary stories are cautionary tales and cautionary tales uh, build that up inside yourself that you're not a weak person that you're not the one that's the big bad wolf is going to jump on the, the path you know because you know there are bad things out there you don't have to be a a dark person that's always worried but you're smart. And you know that there is stuff out there that you have to be careful of. So I think sometimes a little bit of horror is a good thing for people to to read and to know about. So it makes you all smarter and I want you to be smart and I want you to all be safe. So on that note, um, let me know if you see the movie, if you like it um, or if you're interested and if you've seen the documentary. I'm going to look up the links and start posting that. But I hope you have a great week and I hope that if your kids are going back to school or you're going back to school, you have a good beginning of the school. I got a couple weeks yet. Um, I think next week I have to meet up with the rest of the faculty and get ready. And then the week after that, our school starts. So it's coming soon. It's almost here. It comes really fast, doesn't it? But have a great week and I will see you next Monday. Bye guys. I'm going to post, I just love my Liberty Librarian ad. So I'm just going to post again just because I think it's so cool to have an ad. Let's see, where did it go? And like, Heather, what are you doing? Mm -mm -mm. Oh, fudge. I'm going to post an ad and then I will get right out of here. Oh, here it is. Tune in every Monday with your host, Heather Biederman, for the Liberty Librarian. Liberty Librarian, your home for intellectual freedom news and commentary. Every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Eastern. All intellectual freedom fighters are always welcome at our home on Freedomizer Radio. Join us.